good to be with you today. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and find Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And as you're finding that and kind of getting settled in, uh, we just want to take a couple of moments and recognize, honor, and encourage a very special group of people that are in our community. And uh, we know that uh, many of you, maybe you've already started back to school. Maybe some of you are getting ready to go back to school. And I just want to ask across all of our campuses, if you are a school teacher, would you please stand to your feet and stay standing for just a moment? Go ahead and stand up. All of our campuses, all of our rooms, the school teacher, all of our heroes, look around the room. Stay standing, stay standing, if you would. Now, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make you stand for a really long time. I know some of you are like really uncomfortable doing that. I just want to simply say to those of you standing, hey, we see you and we love you and appreciate you so much. You had a difficult job pre-pandemic. Uh, it has only gotten more complicated and difficult post-pandemic. And I know that many of you are underappreciated, underpaid, constantly under pressure. You've always got somebody maybe upset with you, maybe pressure from a school board, maybe some unhappy parents. Maybe you've got that child in your classroom. You know the one. And, uh, and I just want you to know, like, we uh, see you, and we know you have an incredibly difficult job, and you are modern-day Daniels, if there ever was one, right in the midst of it, impacting the next generation. So here's what I want to do. All, all of our locations right now, if you are anywhere in the vicinity of somebody standing, would you, you don't need to touch them. Just put your hand in their direction, just as symbolic of lifting them up in support. And we just want to pray a prayer of blessing over you as you start the school year. All right? Father, we come to you right now. And we thank you so much for these men and women who serve you so selflessly in a, a job that oftentimes does not get enough recognition and honor that it deserves. And so, Father, we just lift them up to you. We pray that um, you would ready them for the school year ahead. We ask that you would give them peace. We pray that you would encourage them. Uh, if they are feeling discouraged in any way, I pray right now that your spirit would come and minister to them in spirit, that we could minister to them in relationship. And God, I just thank you so much for what they have chosen to do with their lives to impact the next generation. And I pray that you would just bless their socks off today. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Hey, can you give it up for them one more time? And... Uh, we, we don't just want to say, hey, you know, uh, bless you and pray for you. We want to meet, meet a tangible need as well. And so if you are sitting anywhere near the vicinity of one of those people standing, immediately after the service, just make a beeline over to them and ask them if they have a wish list of some kind, some items that they need for their classroom. And as a church family, let's just clear those lists and we'll go first. All right? If you are a teacher, just text the word teacher to 87221. And we will send you a $75 gift card to go towards taking care of those lists. So text that in. Uh, we, will, we will keep that line open till midnight tomorrow night. So just any time between now and midnight tomorrow night, then we will mail you the gift card on Tuesday. Because we, we love and appreciate you. We want to help make your job um, easier. So, so thank you. All right. Well, we are. Yeah, one more time. One more time. Well, uh, those of you who are just now uh, joining us, last week we kicked off a new series of messages in the Old Testament book of Daniel, and we're calling it Among 
lions. And last week, if you were here, we looked at Babylon's strategy to influence Daniel. This week in chapter 2, I want to look at Daniel's strategy to influence Babylon. And uh, to kind of get started, I was thinking about this this last week. You know, I, I grew up in the church. Many of you, maybe you're like me, you had a uh, strong church background. And, and uh, there were a lot of pros and cons to that. But one of the cons was when I was in grade school, I, got, I was somewhat of a, living a little bit of an insulated life in the sense that I didn't really have any Christians outside, or I didn't have any friends outside the church. And so most of my friends, like they went to church, their parents knew God, they were Christians. But when we were in the seventh grade, I was in the seventh grade, not we, I was in the seventh grade. We moved to a new neighborhood and uh, on my block was a uh, guy by the name of Todd Wood. And Todd became a friend of mine and we kind of ran with the same group of guys in that neighborhood. We played lots of driveway basketball, lots of backyard football. And Todd was the very first friend that I made whose family didn't go to church. He didn't believe in God. In fact, he was a very outspoken atheist. He was a couple years older than me. And I just like didn't know what to do with him. Like it was like so disorienting to me to try to engage him in conversation and to try to figure out how to navigate that. And I'm so thankful for that relationship looking back. But uh, this was like in the late 80s. And uh, Todd was really into hip hop. And one of his favorite artists was a guy by the name of Bobby Brown. And Bobby Brown had a song at the time that was really popular called My Prerogative. And so Todd, Todd let me borrow his Bobby Brown cassette tape. This is dating me a bit. Uh, so that I could listen to the song. And I remember taking it to my house, put it in my, my cassette tape player, my boom box, all right? And I, and I was listening to this. And there, those of you that remember the song, it's all about, you know, Bobby Brown saying, you know, don't tell me how to live my life. You know, I'm going to do what I want to do. And there was this one line in which he says, I really don't give a, and then he curses. And it wasn't like a major curse word, but it was certainly well beyond what I was allowed to say. And I remember I was like, whoa, you know, this is, wow, this is crazy, you know? And so I, <laughs> very insulated life, right? So, so some of you remember, some of the old cassette tapes, you could actually record over them. And so I rewound the tape, cued it up to that word, and right when he got ready to drop the word, I hit record, and I dubbed it out. All right, so I, I handed the tape back to Todd. Uh, thank you for letting me borrow it. And he takes it back, puts it in his, uh, puts it in his cassette tape. That first time he listens to it, gets to that part of the song where Bobby Brown belts out, I really don't give a, and then my cracking adolescent voice came on and said, Hoot! Right? Really don't give a hoot. Some of you are like, is that one of those preacher stories? No, I really did do that, right? Not one of my finer moments. Now, here's the amazing thing that happened is that Todd, as soon as he heard that, he dropped to his knees in his bedroom in a spirit of repentance. And he asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into his life and asked me if I'd come over and baptize him in his backyard pool. Now, man, that didn't happen at all. In fact, in fact, um, I lost a friend. Like Todd was so annoyed, irritated, and frankly weirded out that I would do something like that, is that he really wasn't interested in maintaining a friendship with me any longer. And looking back on it, like I don't blame him. You see, I sought to, I wouldn't know how to articulate it then like I do now, but what I was trying to do was moralize him into a relationship with Jesus. And as a result, the relationship fell apart. See, I thought that Todd's biggest problem was a curse word in a song. Todd's biggest problem was that he didn't know Jesus and he didn't know anybody to connect him to Jesus, the one who could change anyone and everyone. Now, some 35-ish years later, you would think, 
that I would know better, but I still struggle, with, even as a pastor, to know how to be a godly influence upon others within a very godless culture. And my guess is I'm not the only one. My guess is that uh, many of us, like right now, we're feeling the pressure now more than ever. That, that society and maybe friends and family are shouting questions at you that you really don't know how to answer. And you have a belief, but you're wondering, like, how secure is my belief? Can I be conversant in this uh, enough to be able to talk to others to influence them towards Jesus? This is why I really want to encourage you, those of you that just want to grow deeper in your faith, get more secure in your foundation, and even those that are you that are brand new to faith, to sign up for Rooted. The registration's open between now and August 29th. We've got 700 spots available for the fall session. I really want to encourage you um, to, to go for it because it's designed to do just what it's called, root you in your faith. And so uh, just a little bit of recap from where we were last week, if you missed it, from chapter one, is that we see there's this really uh, awful king by the name of Jehoiakim. He's leading Israel. And um, the people of Israel keep making commitments to God and then falling away. And so God keeps warning them. And then King Nebuchadnezzar over Babylon, they attack Israel and besiege them. Meaning that they take the best of the best of the culture, the economy, the arts, and the talent back to Babylon. So Babylon can absorb that into their culture, become even a stronger empire. And so you've got Daniel and his three friends. They were likely 14 or 15 years old at the time. They are ripped away from their families, forced to walk 700 miles to Babylon. They are enrolled in a Babylonian training school designed to make them Babylonian. In other words, remove and erase anything that is distinctive about their relationship with the one true God. They are pressured to have their diet changed. Their names are changed to reflect the names of Babylonian gods. And they are put under the chief eunuch, which likely would have meant that they would have been forced to undergo a surgery that would have removed anything distinctive about their gender. So overall, a bad day. And Daniel and his friends, instead of getting angry, instead of, you know, rising up, they knew and lived their lives by the truth that you and I need to be reminded of today, that God is in control of those who think they're in control when things seem out of control. Like Daniel and his friends, they weren't bitter. They didn't get loud and protest, you know, hashtag Nebuchadnezzar, you know, not my king. You know, they, they weren't angry. They didn't freak out or blend in. They sought to make a difference right where they lived by being different. And they demonstrated so much wisdom and balanced judgment that the king and everyone else within Babylon, they just couldn't help but notice that they were living their lives in such a distinct way that they said, hey, you've got a seat at the table. And that's where they made tremendous influence. And so Daniel goes from being a 15-year-old victim by the end of chapter 2, which is what we're going to get to today, becoming the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire in the known world at the time. And here's what I love about the story of Daniel, is that the story of Daniel is not about God calling a young man into full-time vocational ministry. The story of Daniel is not about God raising up a pastor, a missionary, or a prophet. It is the story of God sending a young man into the marketplace. Send, Daniel was a government employee. He was the senior advisor to the president of Babylon. 
surrounding Daniel may have been the spirit of Babylon, but filling Daniel was the spirit of the living God. Because Daniel knew what you and I need to be reminded of today, this truth that is found in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Man, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So you don't need to freak out. You don't need to blend in. You don't need to rise up. You don't need to get angry. You don't need to get bitter. You don't need to get fearful, hopeless, or in despair. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And God always seeks to make a difference <laughs> through those in the community, the classroom, and the marketplace. This right now, what we're doing right now is the church gathered, but this isn't church in and of itself. This is just the gathering for the purpose of scattering. And you're scattered in courage, hopefully. You're, in scattered, uh, built, you're, you're, you're scattered out, built up, and filled up so that you can go and pour yourself out into the community. This is why once a month is not enough. This is why just settling for online is not enough. You just got to get in community with others to get filled up because uh, literally, like we're among lions out in the culture and we need to be filled up. Please understand that uh, God always uses people in the marketplace. He always has. Abraham was a farmer. Luke was a doctor. Nehemiah was a real estate developer. Uh, Esther was in civil government working against racial injustice. Cornelius was a major in the military. Rahab, well, she was a working girl. And none of them, <laughs> none of them were in full-time vocational ministry. In fact, in the book of Acts, where the church got started, 39 of the 40 miracles in the book of Acts, take place outside the church community. Most of the good that God is going to do is going to come through people in marketplace jobs. So can I just say to you right now, man, go be the church. Man, go kill it in the classroom. Not just so that you can become valedictorian and get a full ride at the university of your choice, although those are great things, but so that you can glorify God and make a difference by being different. Man, go absolutely crush it at your marketplace job especially if you were the only Christian in the office. And what that means is that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. You're going to show up early. You're going to stay late. You're going to honor your coworkers. You're going to build wealth and leverage it for the kingdom of God. Why? So that you can glorify God and make a difference by being different. God is looking for more modern day Daniels, men and women who will stand up and be faithful to God throughout the cultural climate that we live and ferociously love people right where they're at. Why? Because we've been building on a solid foundation of God's grace and truth. And we can be sure-footed in that. So here's the cycle that we see happen in the book of Daniel. And this is what we see continuing to happen today. There is some sort of external threat or pressure. Anybody under pressure right now? Yeah, I am some external threat or pressure, then a wise and courageous response. Then God displays his power and his sovereignty, of which then he gets the glory. Then godly people gain the respect and admiration of ungodly people within a godless culture, and then they get an opportunity to make, uh, have an influence and make a difference. That's the cycle that we continue to see happening. So as we go into chapter 2, last week, chapter 1, was Babylon's strategy to influence Daniel. Chapter 2 is Daniel's strategy to influence Babylon. And so let's pick this up in the first two verses, beginning of verse 1. It says, One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. So he called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, 
and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. Now, it might be important for us to know that in Babylonian culture, when you had a dream, they thought that your dreams were messages from the gods. Uh, maybe another way of saying it is they thought that their dreams were the news in reverse. And so they felt like dreams were sort of uh, predicting the future. Now, when you and I have a really weird, like, psychedelic dream, you know, you know the one where you're riding a unicorn down the beach dressed in a parka, right? It's like, these are weird dreams. We wake up in the morning and we go, man, that was a weird dream. I need to stop eating so many microwave burritos before bedtime. But in this culture, they're like, I got to know what the dream means because this is predicting my future. Especially if you are an important guy like Nebuchadnezzar who needed to um, maybe make some decisions about policy or this is really more likely the case, he was just paranoid. He was constantly looking over his shoulder, wondering who was trying to kill him, get rid of him, to take over his throne. That is a legitimate concern because two of the next three Babylonian kings would be assassinated. So Nebuchadnezzar is like, I got to know. So he brings in the astrologers, the sorcerers of the day, and they really weren't worth much, right? They were pretty much the uh, equivalent of the magic eight ball of their day. You know, so they're going to give some kind of general kind of thing that maybe would be enough to satisfy gullible people, but not somebody really bright like Nebuchadnezzar. And so he says to them, this is a brilliant move. He goes, I'm not even, he brings them in and he goes, I'm not even going to tell you what I dreamed. I want you to tell me what I dreamed. So that way I can have the confidence to know you can interpret it. And their response is about what you would expect in verse 10. They said, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. So a little bit of gaslighting going on. Verse 11, the king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they don't live here among people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. So we are 13 verses deep into chapter 2. This is the first time that Daniel's mentioned. He's not even in the room. So why is an, has an edict gone out to kill him? Well, this is guilt by association. Daniel has likely already finished the three-year Babylonian training program. If you recall, he was like 13 or 14 years old when he gets started. He's likely around 17 years old or so at the time. And because he has graduated from this program, he is considered one of the king's men, which means that he is implicated now just because he finished the training program. Well, in verse 14, it says, When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them. Right? He didn't come to necessarily tell them why. He just came to kill them. Notice this. Daniel handled the situation, once again, with wisdom and discretion. I don't know about you. Somebody's coming to kill me. I'm going to freak out. I'm probably not going to handle it with wisdom and discretion. And he asked Arioch in verse 15, well, why is the king issued such a harsh decree? And that is what it was. It was extremely harsh. It was irrational. And Arioch told him all that had happened. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us the specific about Arioch and Daniel's conversation. I would imagine it kind of went down something like this. Arioch closes the door behind him. He sits down and he goes, Daniel, dude, uh, just between you and me, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is cracking up. The guy is paranoid. 
He's irritable. He's not sleeping very well because of all these crazy dreams. He's slamming monster energy drinks like there's no tomorrow. He's on all these prescription drugs. Like, like the guy is not healthy. He's not eating very good. Like Daniel, he's losing it. And uh, so that's why we're in this situation. And so that informs kind of Daniel's perspective. And it says in verse 16, Daniel went at once. All right, this is kind of an application within the, the text. It's not even really a part of the sermon. That, that word at once is so key. Like you got a problem with somebody, go at once. Like don't just wait. Don't, don't, it'll always get infected the longer you wait. He just goes at once to see the king. And he requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. And for whatever reason, Nebuchadnezzar gives this to him. Now, we don't really know why, but we can surmise that the reason why is because of the way that Daniel has been conducting himself since he's arrived in Babylon. He has engaged. He has been thoughtful. He's been wise. He's used discretion. And so already we can see that Nebuchadnezzar respects Daniel because of the way that he's been living his life. And so he grants him this extra time to interpret the dream. Now, verses 17 and 18, Daniel goes back to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, hey, guys, uh, we need to huddle up here. Uh, we got a little bit of an issue uh, on our hands. Uh, I just need you all to know that I sort of promised the king that we need a little bit more time and we could interpret his dream. And I would imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, you did what? Why in the world would you ask or promise such a thing? Because we have never once interpreted dreams. And Daniel's like, well, we just need to pray and ask that God would help us to know what the dream is so that we could interpret it. Now, here's what's really, really unusual about this. Dream interpretation was not something followers of God took seriously or engaged in. It was a pagan practice. And so Daniel is essentially saying to them, hey guys, we need to pray that God would help us do witchcraft really good. We need to pray that God would help us to know how to do the Ouija board exceptionally well. Now, we need to pray that God would help us bartend and work the blackjack table in Vegas, you know, to his glory. And this is kind of the equivalent. And I would imagine that if anybody back in Israel, the people of God in Israel, if they heard that Daniel and his friends were praying this prayer, they likely would have looked down on it. They were like, man, you, you shouldn't engage in that pagan practice. But Daniel was willing to, to do so, to kind of inch onto that playing field. Why? Because he knew what you and I need to be reminded of, that God is on a rescue mission. That Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in essence, were the Navy SEALs. They were behind enemy lines. And they said, Babylon may not love God, but God loves Babylon. And God is going to flex here through us. And, he's gonna, and we're going to be able to make a difference in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So verse 19, that night the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And I just want to read his prayer because this is a prayer I think that we should begin praying in our lives in this current cultural climate in which we live. Daniel said, praise the name of God forever and ever. For he has all wisdom and power. Verse 21 is key. He controls the course of world events. Next time you turn on the news and freak out, read verse 21. 
God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. And in verse 24, Daniel goes to Arioch and he says, hey, take me to see the king. And he says this, I will tell him the meaning of his dream. And so Arioch, man, he's like panicked, you know, he, he, he realizes the urgency of the moment. So he quickly takes Daniel to the king and he said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. And the king said to Daniel, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? And right here, this is Daniel's moment. He has been faithfully living for God within a very godless culture. He's been patient. He's been wise. He has been living with discernment. And now he's got a moment. And can I just say to you, you've been doing that day in and day out. Faithfully living for God, faithfully investing in the lives of others, faithfully operating with wisdom. There will come a moment just like this. And so Daniel starts off kind of sounding a little bit like the astrologers, but then he's going to turn a very rapid corner. Verse 27, Daniel replied, Oh, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. Verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now, I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay in your bed. I love that boldness so, so much. And then Daniel goes on to explain the dream. I don't have time to read all those verses because it's quite lengthy. Let me summarize it into this. You can go back and reread it for yourself. He describes this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has in which there is this very large statue. And the statue represents the subsequent kingdoms of men throughout time. So the head is a head of gold, and that represents Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And then the chest and the arms are silver, most likely representing Persia. The torso and thighs were bronze, most likely representing Greece. The legs were made of iron, possibly representing Rome. The feet and the toes were a mixture of iron and clay. So this is representative of all the kingdoms of men under the kingdom of God throughout time. This represents every nation since the beginning of time. And you might say, well, uh, you know, where is America in the statue? I don't know. We didn't come up. All right. But we're, we're mixed in there somewhere. This, and so is China, and so is Russia, and so is Europe. Like, we're all mixed in there somewhere. But what I really want you to notice is that all of these empires, all of these nations look really, really impressive. But they're built on a very unstable foundation. And Daniel goes on, and he says in verse 34, As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. So we went through and looked at what each, like the gold and the silver and the bronze, what that represented. The million-dollar question is, what does the rock represent? Any guesses? I hear a couple of mumblings of Jesus. You know that's a safe answer in church, right? Like <laughs> at least 50% of the time you're going to be right. Yeah, like uh, 
The rock represents Jesus. We know that for a couple of reasons. If you notice earlier in the text, it says that it was not cut by human hands. The second is something that Jesus actually said of himself in Luke chapter 20, when he's explaining a parable. And Jesus says this, the stone or rock that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces. Jesus is referring to himself there. Jesus is the rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The book of Daniel is not just about Daniel. It is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Just this like unimpressive rock compared to the gold, the silver, and the bronze. And, but they don't have a very solid foundation. And the rock strikes the foundation and all the kingdoms of men, no matter how impressive or how much in control they appear to be, they crumble and they are blown away. Now, this isn't God's vengeance upon the nations. This is God promising the new heaven and the new earth. This is God promising that his kingdom will prevail. How can I say that? Because he says the rock becomes a mountain. Well, look what it says in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshiped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this secret. And that kind of seems like good news, but this just reveals to me that Neb doesn't get it yet. A couple things like he's worshiping Daniel, not God. The other thing is he's like all excited. <laughs> Daniel just told him his kingdom is going to crumble. He's not listening, right? He's just relieved that somebody interpreted his dream. But then here's where Daniel gets a big promotion. Verse 48. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. All right, so this is the end of chapter 2. What I want you to see is that in these previous two chapters, from the age of 13 to 17, Daniel has gone from being a victim to the second most powerful man in the, sec in the most powerful empire in the known world at the time. Now, what's the application for you and me today? Like, what, what are the takeaways for us to, to implement into our lives? Like, I very seriously doubt tomorrow at work, your boss is going to come in and go, man, I've just been having these crazy dreams. I, I don't think that's going to happen. So, so what can we t take away from this? Well, here, I've just got two things for you. Here's the first one right here. We just need to be reminded that God is at his strongest when I'm at my weakest. And if any of you are feeling pretty weak and vulnerable right now, if any of you are feeling hopeless and in despair, God is closer than you think. And, and this is why a prerequisite to accepting Jesus in the gospel message is that you deny yourself. Like you just recognize how um, uh, unable you are to do anything to save yourself. And so you come to God empty-handed empty and vulnerable. God flexes when we recognize how weak we really are. And so what I want you to understand is that in, in Daniel chapter 1, that is not the first time that King Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Israel. He'd actually done it 10 years prior when Daniel and his friends were just kids. 
And that time around, they took 10,000 people from Israel. They took all of the cultural leaders, the professional class out of Israel, and they brought them to Babylon, except that time they refused to go in. Like they set up a camp outside the city in protest. And they were like, we are not going to go in. In fact, all these false prophets kind of rose up and they began to speak. And one of them was this dude by the name of Hananiah. And Hananiah was a leading false prophet. And if you want to know everything that he had to say, you can read all about this in Jeremiah chapter 28. But let me summarize what Hananiah said. He said to them, yeah, man, don't go into the city. We're the true believers and they are the pagans. Stay separate from those filthy Babylonians and have nothing to do with them. You just set up camp and these little holy huddles outside the city and don't go in and don't engage and pray that God would smite them and judge them and overthrow them. And one day we'll get our guy voted back into office and we'll take power once again. Sound familiar to anyone? I think I heard a guy on a street corner not that long ago with a megaphone and a sandwich board sign essentially saying the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. And honestly, as I even say some of that, some of you, like it might even sound right or true to you. But see, here's the thing. Jeremiah was the one true prophet of God. He hears that Hananiah is saying that. And in chapter 29, Jeremiah says this. No, no, no. Don't don't set up camp outside and refuse to go in. He says, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Dramatically different message than what Hananiah was saying. And I just wonder, fast forward 10 years, when Daniel and his friends get taken to Babylon in a very similar fashion, if they had Jeremiah 29 tucked away in their back pocket, reading it every day. We know that Daniel had read it because he quotes it in Daniel chapter 9. And now it is their turn to be political refugees. And he says, you know what? We're not going to stand outside a camp. We're not going to pray asking God to smite them or judge them or overthrow them. We're actually going to work for the good of the city that we're in. We're going to live for God within a very godless culture rather than isolating or assimilating. We're going to develop deep and meaningful relationships with people who don't know God. And we will go into the world rather than retreating. We can be in but not of. This message has never been more relevant than it is right now today. And this makes us uncomfortable because we're like, well, we feel all this pressure. The reason why is because if you are a child of God, if you, have, if you are a follower of Jesus, what that means is you are just like the Israelites in exile. And so you got a decision. Am I going to isolate or am I going to assimilate? Am I going to pray and ask God to make this a Christian nation once again and get our guy or whoever it is voted back into office? Or will I work for the good of the city and live for God and build relationships with people who don't know God so that they can see and hear Jesus through me? That's going to require courage, wisdom, 
and sound judgment, none of which do you usually find on Facebook. So understand, this is really, amen, amen. All right, so understand, here's this point of conviction, is that sometimes, I'm not saying this is true all the time, but sometimes as Christians, we can demand respect from everyone, but give respect to no one, and then claim, well, I'm being persecuted for my beliefs. Well, no, maybe I'm being persecuted for just being a jerk. See, understand, there is no such thing as, we're the good guys, and they're the bad guys. No, we are all bad guys. There's only one saving good guy, and his name is Jesus Christ, and we are called to live for him. So Jeremiah goes on, and he goes, hey man, don't let Hananiah or all those false prophets fool you. That's a lie. This is the message from God. Verse 10, chapter 29 of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. This is 10 years before Daniel. Daniel, ironically, is in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and I will do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans. This is the verse that we quote at every high school graduation, quite possibly out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. In other words, God is saying to them and to all of us today as Christ followers, man, pull your heads up and look and see the bigger thing that God is seeking to do in the world. This is not about trying to win the culture wars. We lost those back in 1968 or so, I think. This is not about the eroding values and morals of the country. This is not about trying to, you know, fight to Make this a Christian nation once again, and please don't mishear me. I love our country. This is God saying to all of us, I have permitted you to be exiles in Babylon. And that's actually part of my plan, that you would be culturally displaced because you cannot influence anyone or anything at a difference. It is interesting to me that two primary figures that God used in the Old Testament were Joseph and Daniel. Both of them were culturally displaced. What makes you think you and I won't be? So understand these, this important truth. Christianity is centered around a cross, not a position of power. We lay our lives down. Jesus didn't walk into the Oval Office. He was nailed to a tree. And history usually shows us that when Christianity gets into the place of central power within a country, it almost always corrupts. And so often the way that God revives and preserves and multiplies his kingdom coming is by taking his followers out of cultural power and says, watch what I can do through you. Watch what I can do through salt and light. But that takes a lot of trust. And we say, God, do you really know what you're doing? Now... Can I just say right now, if you were not one of the ones who clapped and you find yourself feeling hopeless or in despair or a little bit agitated with me, can I just maybe just throw this out there that perhaps you've been listening to Jeremiah 28 and you need to begin reading Jeremiah 29. We need to remember that God is at work in and through those of us who are in the kingdom of Babylon. So be deeply involved and engaged in the lives of others who are far from God, but you unapologetically live for God. Now is the time for us to be modern day Daniels. Here's the second question. It's just simply this. Hey, what kingdom am I building? This is a real gut check right now. And I think that over the last two years, all of the events kind of showed all of us, maybe if our foundation was built on clay. You know, it's so easy to read the Old Testament narratives 
and to just sort of put ourselves in the position of who we think is the good guy in the story. So, you know, it's like I can read David and Goliath and I I never identify with Goliath. I'm always like, I'm David. And all of my enemies are Goliath. You know, I read this uh, chapter 2 of Daniel. It's like I've never once been like, well, I think I'm kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. No, it's like I'm always, I'm always Daniel and somebody else is always Nebuchadnezzar. And God kind of took me onto the mat uh, this last week with this. Is like, you know, Aaron, what if you have more in common with Nebuchadnezzar than you do Daniel? Because Nebuchadnezzar was building his kingdom. He was a guy of ambition. And Daniel says, hey, everything that you've been able to accomplish, it is impressive, but it's built on a really shaky foundation and not much can take it down. And my guess is that we really aren't all that different from Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, we're all building a kingdom of some kind. For some of us, maybe, maybe your kingdom is your career. For others, maybe it's your image or your influence on social media. Maybe it's your relationship uh, that you have, uh, whether that's a marriage or a dating relationship. Maybe for some of you, it's your children's education or their sports. It could be anything. It's actually taking really, really good things and making them too much of a God thing. And if you are building your life on anything other than the rock of Jesus Christ, if you're chasing greatness or self-worth, you will always be haunted by anxiety and worry. If you're building your life on your image, you will always fall apart when people say things about you that hurts. If you're building your life on money, you will always be fearful of what's happening in the markets. If you're building your life on your looks, you will always be fearful of what's happening in the mirror. It is feet of clay. And at some point in our lives, something will strike. It's your health, it's an issue in your marriage, it's a career thing. Something will strike the foundation and it's actually a blessing because it reveals what you've been building on and it's an opportunity to begin building on the rock of Jesus Christ. The key difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not what we believe. It's not just how we behave. The key difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the foundation you're building your life on. And so um, a guy by the name of Tim Keller puts it so well. He said, humanism, which by the way is the number one religion in the world today. I'm just going to, he's Bobby Brown. I'm just going to do what I want to do, right? Humanism gives you lots of flexibility in the way that you live, but very little certainty about your foundation or your future. So can I just say, like, it's fun to call your own shots. It's, I mean, sin is fun until it leaves you emotionally and relationally homeless. On the other hand, religion gives you lots of certainty about your future and foundation, but very little flexibility in the way that you live, which is why religious people can be so harsh, mean-spirited, and judgmental. And Jesus isn't offering either one of those things. Jesus is offering us a third way to do this a better way. It's the gospel, which is called good news. And the gospel gives you lots of certainty about your future and lots of flexibility in the way that you live. It's called freedom in Christ. And when you give your life to Jesus Christ, it is not the suppression of your impulses and desires. It is the redemption and restoration of them. 
that God gives you a new heart and a new set of desires and a new lens. And you actually find that you, you were a slave and now you're free. And what it basically comes down to is this. Do I really trust God that the foundation he wants me to build on is durable enough or do I want to keep building on clay? See, the book of Daniel might be called Daniel, but it is all about Jesus. And I'm so grateful that Jesus came into our world and he didn't choose to stay separate. Jesus, I'm not gonna get in there and, and you know, get your filth all over me. I'm gonna stay separate and I'm gonna pray that God the Father smite you and judge you. No, Jesus wrapped himself in human flesh and he walked among us and he was tempted in every way that we are, but he didn't sin. And he built the bridge back to God so that we could be reconciled with him. Daniel in Babylon is sort of this shadowing of Jesus when he would come incarnate to earth. And that's what God is asking Christ followers to step into, to not freak out over the cultural climate. There's nothing new under the sun. Don't blend in. You don't need to be embarrassed for God. His word stands true. You stand secure and you ferociously love people the way that God is ferociously loved Grace and truth are the only things that can change this world. And that always comes through God's people. Lord God, we come to you right now. And we are living in a tumultuous cultural climate. And yet, instead of being paralyzed by that, fearful of that, bitter about that, God, we actually want to have a set of lenses in which we're excited about that. Because when things are at their darkest, that's when light shines the brightest. And so God, what we need is um, not to, you know, uh, vote our person back into office, whoever that person may be. And I'm not saying politics are unimportant, it's just not the answer. You're the answer. And so, Father, we come to you right now, and we just want to collectively repent of how we have sought power, maybe even just in our own lives, and our own platforms, when really you've asked us to surrender that and to lean into your strength, which means that we've got to embrace our weakness. God, we want to repent of some of the kingdoms that we have built that just are not durable. And we wanna live with a kingdom mindset, your kingdom, knowing that is where our citizenship resides. And until you return, we are exiles. So Father, would you please move? God, I, I pray that you would breathe new wind into our church. I pray that you would do things that um, we can't even fathom as we seek to make a difference within our city, to serve for the good of the city, because we know that you love the city and you love the people within the city. They are not the enemy and they need to know and see Jesus who can change anyone. And it begins with worship. It begins with a consecrated heart. It begins with open hands where we just lean into you. And so God, I pray something real tender would happen right now in this room that we find ourselves in. That your Holy Spirit would enter in and that you, we would have an encounter with the living God. 
not move too fast, fast this moment. Let's, let's really lean in and ask you to minister to our hurting hearts. Some of us have been fighting a battle we should have never been fighting. And we need to lay our weapons down and we need to fight for our hearts to re-surrender those back to you because you are in control.